We can turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of John, chapter 1. The Gospel of John, chapter 1, as we finish our incarnation focus. And as I like to say, and it's probably like a broken record, every Sunday is an incarnation focus. But uh, we're going to look at verses 15 through 18, continuing the significance of the incarnation. The word surpassing excellence is what we will see, but I will read the entire uh, prologue, so verses 1 through 18 uh, for us. So we'll begin reading at verse 1. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. This man came for a witness to bear witness of the light that all through him might believe. He was not the light, but was sent to bear witness of that light. That was the true light which gives light to every man coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness of him and cried out, saying, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me is preferred before me, for he was before me. And of his fullness we have all received, and grace for grace. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, who is in the bosom of the Father, he has declared him. Amen. Well, let us pray. Well, Lord our God, we ask again that you would send forth your Holy Spirit to illumine our hearts and minds, to come and consider the mystery of the hypostatic union, to come and consider the significance of what Christ has done, that we receive grace upon grace, that uh, we have seen him uh, who is the eternally begotten Son of the Father. Thank you that we see him uh, in Jesus Christ. We're thankful that he is the one who took on a, the Son, took on that human nature uh, to die on our behalf. Thank you that the law... Uh, was given through Moses, but grace and truth has come through Jesus Christ. And so as we come and consider the surpassing excellence of our Lord, we ask and pray uh, that we would be impressed by him, that we would recognize who he is, that we would recognize that he is the creator and we are the created. He is the redeemer and we are the redeemed and we are his people. Help us to know our place in this fallen world, this lower world. Help us to know our place in the redeemed world as well that we shall never become God, but we are thankful we can know you, O God, that we can worship you, that we get to praise you, we get to have communion with you. And we ask and pray and we can, uh, that we would love our Christ. We confess we probably don't love him as much as we ought, but again, we are thankful that there is mercy and forgiveness in him. So we ask and pray that you would send forth your spirit. Uh, be pleased to save sinners today, if there are any here who do not know you. Be pleased to strengthen and encourage and uplift your saints today as we consider your grace and mercy. And we ask and pray in all things you would be glorified. And we pray these things in the name of Christ. Amen. Amen. Well, an important question to ask ourselves is, are we impressed with our God? And even a further question or a 
another question, are we impressed with the person of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ? And if we are honest, the answer to that question is probably not as much as we should be. The reality is other things take up our attention, and we are often more impressed with other things or other people than we are with our Savior. And these things are what we call idols. People can be idols, things can be idols, and it's easy to be impressed with things that we see. It's hard to be impressed with things that we don't see. And let's be honest, we do not see our Lord. We believe him, but we're not as impressed with him as we ought to be. Now, thankfully, there is good news. God is merciful, God is gracious, and Christ is the one who is full of grace and truth. And if we believe upon him, if we believe upon the Son, believe upon his name, we shall have life everlasting. Remember, that's why John writes. He gives his purpose statement in John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. These things are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. So we've spent some time looking at John's high and lofty prologue to help us see the majesty of the Son, the majesty of the Lord, the majesty of the Word, focusing in on that incarnational text, verse 14, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And really the incarnation begins at verse 6 with the preparation, with the one who's subordinate to, but prepares the way of the Word. We've seen the reception of the one who came to his own, yet many rejected him. And then in verse 14, we begin the significance. And we saw last time how it is a great mystery that the one who is the divine son, the word, takes on a human nature and dwells among us. And so when we consider the significance and the majesty of our son, the the son, the problem is, is when we love inferior things. Now, an important caveat is it's not wrong to enjoy temporal blessings that God has given us. It's not wrong to be impressed by certain feats that people engage in. But are we more impressed with our Christ? And do our lives reflect that? Do our lives reflect the fact that we are children of the high, one true God? Does it reflect the fact that Christ has died for us and that we see in him the Father? We see in him the one who is God. Israel is more impressed by the prophets, but someone greater than Moses has come. Mankind is more impressed with man's achievements, often our own achievements, than we are with the one who is the God-man. Man needs a gracious God, and is there any greater demonstration of God's grace than the incarnation? And all that that entails, not just the coming, not just the son assuming a human nature, but all that he does living a life of perfection, living the law in its perfection, and then being the one who dies upon the cross. You see, John wants us to see the surpassing excellence of our Christ. He wants us to see the preeminence of our Christ. He wants us to be impressed with our Christ. And so in John 1, verses 15 through 18, John does this. He's showing the preeminence of our Christ. He is more excellent than the prophets. He is more excellent than the Old Testament but he is as excellent as the Father. He is more excellent than all men, but he is as excellent as the Father because he is the one who is consubstantial with the Father. He wants us to see how excellent our Lord is. And so we'll look at this under two headings this morning. First of all, we'll see the word more excellent than the prophets in verses 15 through 17. The word more excellent than the prophets, verses 15 through 17. Then we're going to see the word as excellent as the Father in verse 18. So the word more excellent than the prophets 
and the word as excellent as the Father in verse 18. So let's first look at the word more excellent than the prophets in verses 15 through 17. Now again, context is important. We've seen the word who is tabernacled among his people. We saw in verses 1 through 5, we saw the essence and the operations of the one who is the divine son, the one who is God, the word was with God, the word was God. We see his identity, but then we also see what he does, the one who, uh, who creates. Only God can create, and the word is the one who creates. And then we saw the start of the talk about the incarnation. John the Baptist's subordination. He is not the light. He bears witness concerning the light, but he is not the light. The world and Israel then reject him. The world and Israel then turn uh, from him. Uh, that's why it's a supernatural work that God must do in the hearts and lives of people that sinners might see who this one is. And so we've come to that miracle of miracles, and now we continue the significance of it. How magnificent our Savior is. Is there any way really to exhaust the majesty of Christ? Is there really any words that we can say that really ascribe to him the honor that is due unto him? Can our feeble words even begin to describe the excellence of our Lord? Because he is more excellent than John the Baptist. He is more excellent than that last prophet. And that's what we see in verse 15. This is why John the evangelist includes this here. Both, both Johns, John the Baptist and John the Evangelist, both recognize John the Baptist's inferiority. They both recognize that he is not the Christ. John has told us that he is not the light. And then John the Baptist then says in verse 19, when he gets all these questions, are you the Christ? I am not. He even that, they even ask, are you Elijah? And he says, I am not. He doesn't know fully uh, the, the extent of his office. We know that Jesus says that he is the Elijah promised in Malachi chapter 4. But John does understand his place. Verse 23 of John 1. He said, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord. He understands that he has a task as the last Old Testament prophet. He is the one who's preparing the way of the Lord, the preparing the way of Yahweh, the one who would come to his temple, the messenger of that covenant, and he is going to proclaim the lamb. That is John's task. He is not the lamb, but he is the one who points men to the lamb. He testifies to who Christ is. Now, John is important when it comes to redemptive history. Again, he is the last Old Testament prophet. He is the Elijah promised of Malachi chapter 4. And that's why we see Moses and Elijah at the Mount of Transfiguration. Moses and Elijah go hand in hand. The first prophet, the preeminent prophet, is Moses, the one who points ahead to the prophet who even exceeds Moses, namely Christ Jesus and John the Baptist, or Elijah is last. We have the beginning and the end of God's revelation in the Old Testament, and John is that last one. The day is dawning. Under the Old Testament, under the Old Covenant, it is darkness. Under the Old Covenant, we see drips. Under the Old Covenant, we see sparks. But in the New Covenant, we see a raging fire. In the New Covenant, we see a roaring river. In the New Covenant, we have light, and that light has come in the one who is the son. But John starts this. He does have an important place. He recognizes his place and he recognizes there is one greater than him. Verse 15. John bore witness of him and cried out saying, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me is preferred before me. Why? 
for he was before me. John the Baptist was born first, but he recognizes that the one who will come after him is greater than him. He recognizes the one who will come after him isn't just man, but he is God as well. He testifies to who the light is, but also what he is. He is the one who is before me. Why is he before me? Because he was before me. He's preferred because he is the preeminent one. John the Baptist understands his place in redemptive history. He is not the main man, and he's perfectly okay with that. Sometimes people are not always okay with not being the main man. But John the Baptist was perfectly okay with it. Christ is the lamb. He is the lamb. He is the one promised. He is the one who prepares the way of the Lord. He actually does see who the lamb is. John the Baptist sees Moses did not. Moses did not see the Christ, the son who took on a human nature. But John the Baptist does See, John testifies, John the Baptist testifies, John the Evangelist testifies to who this Jesus is. So the last prophet, God, the word is greater than the last prophet. He is before me, he who comes after me is preferred before me, for he was before me. But we also see that he's more excellent than the first prophet, Now, we know from Deuteronomy 18 that there's going to be a prophet who will come who will be like Moses, but he's going to be greater than Moses. When the people were looking for a prophet, Moses was it in the Old Testament. He was the guy. And then we see one who comes who is greater than Moses. Again, John the evangelist is explaining the significance of Christ's coming. What does it mean that the word became flesh and dwelt among us? Well, it highlights his greatness, but also his humiliation that he would take on a human nature. The one who did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself of no reputation. How does he do that? By taking on the form of a bondservant. The son takes on a human nature without relinquishing any of his divine attributes, but he, the, uh, the, 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 uh, the relinquishing or the emptying or the making himself of no reputation is the fact that the one who is the eternal son is the one who would take on a human nature, that he would actually come down in this way and the fullness of the deity would dwell in him bodily. And we see that in verse 16. Of his fullness we have received. Of his fullness. This fullness idea refers to the presence of God. Remember, the highest life, the most blessed life that a man can have or women can have is life with God, a life communing with God. What does sin do? Sin severs that favorable presence with God, and now we have God, the one who is son, the one who is God himself, taking on a human nature and dwelling with us that we might then dwell with God. And so we see the temple We see the one who is the temple dwelling amongst us of his fullness refers to the presence of God. The revelation of God is only found, is uh, primarily found in Jesus Christ. And the spreading of God's glory has everything to do with Christ. That's why we see in Colossians 1 and Colossians 2, in him the fullness of the deity dwells bodily. What that means is it's just referring to the incarnation. Again, it's not as though uh, that which is divine can be contained within a body because that which is divine is infinite and our body is finite. 
That which is divine is immeasurable. Our bodies can be measured. I'm 5'11". I was hoping to be six foot two, but I was not. 5'11 is what the Lord gave to me, and that's perfectly fine. But we can be measured. We can be weighed. A lot of us don't like to step on the scale this time of year, but we can be weighed. God cannot. God, in his divine essence, cannot be measured. He is immense, and yet the one who is son took on a human nature, and he really could be measured in that way, but he does not stop being the one who is eternal. And so in the fullness of the deity, it is God's dwelling amongst us. It is his tabernacling amongst us, the fullness of God. And what's interesting is, as we see in scripture, is that we see Christ is the head and the church is his body. And there is, an, there is a place in the book of Ephesians that talks about the spreading of God's glory, and it happens in the church of Jesus Christ. We see this in the book of Ephesians 1, 23. After the Son has lived his perfect life, after the Son has died upon the cross, after the Son has been buried and resurrected, and after the Son has ascended, we see what he is doing as the Son who is begotten, the one who all things have been placed under his feet, the Psalm 110 man. We see him in verse 20. He worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above any. Not only in this age, he rules in this age, but that which is to come. In verse 22, he put all things under his feet and gave him to be head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So now Christ, God is everywhere presence according to his essence, but how is the favorable presence of God spread to the ends of the earth? It's in the church, isn't it? it? Says that right there, his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. And so we enter into this place with the new bright shining lights. We might not see God, but the reality is this is where God dwells. He is the head, we are the body. And where there are true churches, true local churches that are spread to the ends of the earth, that is where God's presence is seen. And as other churches are planted, that is the advancement of the gospel and God's favorable presence uh, is spread. Later on in Ephesians 3.19, he prays for the church there. He bows his knees and he says, to know the love of Christ, which passes knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. How are we filled with all the fullness of God, brethren? It's in Christ Jesus and by the Holy Spirit. How do we live that out in our lives? Well, it starts by gathering in the church of Christ. And as we are fed by his fullness, as we are reminded of the fullness that we have in him, as we are reminded of his presence, we then go out into the world and seek to honor him in all that we do. And that's why the benediction in Ephesians 3, talks about the church, all that he can do, the glory in the church by Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. But of his fullness, we have all received. We have his presence. We dwell with God in Christ Jesus. We dwell with God by the Holy Spirit. And the source of this is God's grace, his eternal grace and grace upon grace. Now, there are many ways that this has been taken, but the main idea is just to highlight its exhaustiveness. God is gracious. God is good. And God gives us of his fullness, grace upon grace. The only way that a wicked man 
or woman who severed the blessed presence with God, the only way that we can dwell with him again is by God's goodness. I will have mercy upon whom I will have mercy. We see that in Exodus 33. And Exodus 33 and 34 is in the background of what we see in verses 14 through 18. And we're going to look at Exodus 34 tonight as we see the one who is the Lord God. And that's the golden calf situation. Remember the people dance around that golden calf and God says they're a bunch of stiff-necked people. So how is it that God can dwell with them? Well, this is when we have that proclamation of the goodness of God. The only way that we can dwell with God, the only way that a stiff-necked, idolatrous people who love other things other than God can dwell with God is if God is gracious. And the way we see God's goodness and mercy is in the Son condescending. We see God's mercy in receiving the benefits that this one has purchased, that you and I might have life with God forever and ever. And so it's grace upon grace. And he goes on to explain what this grace means, what it means uh, to receive grace upon grace, because it only comes in Christ. Verse 17, for the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. He's not saying there are different ways of salvation. It's the same salvation in the Old and the New Testaments. Abraham is the preeminent man of faith. I mean, he believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. It's a redemptive historical explanation. You see, the law does come through Moses. And again, what John is trying to highlight here is how much greater Christ is than Moses how much greater the new covenant is than the old covenant. Because the old covenant was a works covenant. The old covenant was about life in the land. The old covenant was a law concerning uh, the blessedness of enjoying that temporal land. The new covenant is all about life in a heavenly land. Life in a land that lasts forever. Life in a place where we shall never be kicked out of it. Under the old covenant, they were kicked out of it because of their wickedness. Under the new, that shall never be. It is a conditional covenant. But the law comes through this. The law comes through Moses. Moses' primary purpose was to bring the law because that old covenant was primarily about the law. Now, as we're going to see tonight, there is covenant renewal. God renews the covenant with Israel, but nonetheless, it still remains a conditional covenant. Well, we'll see that Tonight, So the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. The fullness of grace is revealed in Jesus Christ. And grace and truth refer back to what we see in Exodus 34. We see the Lord God who is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, merciful and gracious, the one who is full of grace and truth. Now, when God revealed himself to Moses in Exodus 34, it was a great revelation. It was a great theophany. It was a wonderful thing for Moses to experience, so much so he has to worship God and fall down in fear. But there is one who is even greater who has come, a greater revelation even than that, and that has come in Jesus Christ. Grace and truth through Jesus Christ. John has driven to the point and talked about the climax in verse 14, the word becoming flesh, but now he's explaining it more to us. And what's interesting, this is the first time Jesus Christ is mentioned in the prologue. We all know that as we're reading through it, but the word, the word, the light, and now we come to who that is, Jesus Christ. Now, if you were to look at Jesus Christ on the street, it would probably be something that is unimpressive. 
If you were looking to him, he would look just like you and I, yet without sin. But that is the mystery and majesty of God, that in this one, he is the one who is full of grace and truth. And the glory of Christ, where we see his glory, is in his cross. Now, that's kind of an oxymoron, isn't it? When you think about it, the cross. Now, for us, we heard the term cross all of our lives, and it's a wonderful and glorious thing. Remember for the people during the Greco-Roman period, what was the cross? It was a sign of shame. It was an instrument of punishment that was reserved for the worst of people, the lowest of the low. We see that this Christ is the one who hung upon that tree. If you were to say our Savior died upon the cross, people would look at you funny. That wasn't the champions that they knew of. The champions were mighty and strong and vanquishing. I mean, Christ does all of those things, but he does so in a way that is foolishness to the Gentiles. He does so in a way that is a stumbling block to the Jews because only in God is there a great, we see great salvation, the wisdom of God that it's in the cross, that in him that there would be salvation for us. And perhaps when someone saw, again, when you think about Moses, wow, here is this thing passing by. Or even think about John in the book of Revelation. He bows down, he hears a voice in Revelation 22. If you follow the McShane calendar, you would have read that today. And what happens? The angel says, get up. I'm a fellow servant. Don't fall down before me. Worship God. That would have been something that would have been terrifying for John. And he needs to be reminded to worship God. But what about one who dies upon the cross? Would that have been something that would have been impressive? That's why Owen says it was not the glory of Christ's outward condition, for he had no earthly glory or grandeur. He kept no court, nor did he entertain people to parties in the great house. He had nowhere to lay his head, even though he created all things. There was nothing about his outward appearance that would attract the eyes of the world. He appeared to others as a man of sorrows. Neither was it the eternal essential glory of his divine nature that is meant. For this no man can see while in this world. How do we see the fullest revelation of God? It's in one who was born in a manger. It's one who was born of a virgin. It's one who lived a lowly life and one who died upon Calvary's tree. That is where we see grace and truth in the crosswork of Jesus Christ. Grace and truth comes through him. And so, brethren, let us be more impressed with Christ and his grace than we are with men and other things. Let us be more impressed with our Lord. Let us recognize his goodness, his majesty, his kindness, all things uh, that are, are entailed when we consider who the person and work of the Son is. Let us be more impressed with him than we are with other people. Let us be more impressed with him than we are with ourselves. And if we're more impressed with ourselves, dear brethren, let's, which, let's be honest, is pretty often. That's what Facebook is, right? We're just how impressed with ourselves we are. We have to share everything and share all that we're reading. But when we fail, when we forget, when we are neglectful, isn't God good? And isn't there, isn't, aren't we meant to see that there is comfort in his grace? He is full of grace and truth. If you're an unbeliever, believe upon him. Find mercy and forgiveness, grace and truth in this one. And if you are a believer and you struggle, well, there is mercy and forgiveness in Christ. Just press on in the truth. You sin, confess it to him. He is faithful and just to forgive us. Let us be more impressed with our Christ because he is more excellent than the prophets. And thankfully, 
he is as excellent as the Father because he is of one substance with the Father. That's what we see in verse 18. So we move from more excellent than the prophets. Now we're going to see as excellent as the Father in verse 18. And John starts verse 18 by highlighting that ontological chasm. That's a big word to start the day. Sorry about that. But being, God is God and we are man. There is an ontological difference between us and God. When we get to heaven, we don't become God. Okay, that's important to understand. We don't become little gods. We become, we still remain man, but we are thankfully, uh, we are glorified. Uh, we are holy. We will no longer be able to sin, but we do not become God. Only God is God. And no one has seen God at any time. John also says this in 1 John chapter 4. No one has seen God at any time. What it means is we cannot comprehend the essence of God. Moses, Moses speaks to God face to face, but he never sees God. Exodus 33:20 is certainly in the background here where God says, no one can see my face and live. So how is it that we are to see God? Again, it's God's great condescension in his infinite wisdom that it would be the son who takes on a human nature. That in this one who is the son, we see the face of God. Jesus surpasses Moses as he is the one true revealer of God. We can know this incomprehensible God in Christ. Ritterboss says, no, no one of all the witnesses to God has witnessed to God like the one who was from the beginning with God and was God. No one ascended to God, but he who descended from him, John 3.13. He who comes from above is above all and bears witness to what he has seen and heard, John 3.31. No one has seen God at any time, but the only begotten son who is in the bosom of the father he has declared him how is it that man can know god god's condescension how is it that sinful man can know this god it is by god's gracious condescension that it's through this one who declares the father that we might know him and the bible the scriptures use accommodating language analogical language to help us Make sure we don't say things about God we ought not to. So no one can see God, but the only begotten Son. We saw this in verse 14, the eternally generated Son. We, we, we know that uh, the saints who've been adopted are born of God, but we are not eternally born of God. There's only one who is eternally born of God, and that is, the, or eternally born of the Father, I should say. That is the Son. We ought to recognize when it comes to the Trinity, this great mystery, we recognize that there's one God and three subsistences, one God and three persons, one God and three instances of an essence, but there are not three gods. And how do we distinguish? Not by dividing the substance. We don't say there are three gods and we don't confound the persons. The father is not the son. The son is not the Holy Spirit. But the Father is God, the Son is God, and the Holy Spirit is God, yet there is one God. We have to say it in that way. Notice every time I talk about it, I just say the same things over and over again because I don't want to say anything that has not been said uh, by, uh, 
by the church, by church history, by men in the past. I don't want to make up anything novel with what I say. When I say neither confounding the substance or dividing the persons, that comes straight from the Athanasian Creed. When I say the Father is God, the Son is God, the Holy Spirit is God, but there's one God, that comes from the Athanasian Creed. When I say the Father is Almighty, the Son is Almighty, the Spirit is Almighty, yet there's only one Almighty, that all comes from the Athanasian Creed creed. And it's how we think of what uh, we see in the scriptures. There's only one monogenes. There's only one who has been eternally begotten of the Father, the Son. That is him. Highlighting he is consubstantial. He is begotten, eternally begotten of the Father before all worlds. And yet as regards his manhood is begotten of Mary born into the world. Who? Tough stuff, isn't it? when you think about it that way. But it's meant for us to be impressed with our Christ and see the, the, the magnificence of God and our Savior and what he has done. We talk in this way that we might be more impressed with him because if we make God like us, we're not going to be very impressed with him. We need to be impressed with the fact that the one who remains God is the one who took on a human nature, the Son, the only begotten Son. And notice further, John highlights that close association using that analogical language who is in the bosom of the father only one who is god can be in the bosom of the father only one who is god can have that closeness with the father and so gill says it denotes unity of nature and essence in the father and son their distinct personality strong love and affection between them the son's acquaintance with his father's secrets his being at that time as the son of god in the bosom of his father, when here on earth as the son of man, and which qualified him to make the declaration of him, the one who is God, the one who knows the father, is the one who now declares him. No one has seen God, but here is the full revelation that we have of God. It's in Christ Jesus. That's why when we get to heaven, we will still never see the essence of God. It'll always be in Christ Jesus, always in the one who is the son. And again, his purpose is to come and proclaim, to reveal, to declare him, declare the father, declare the way that we dwell with God. How do we know God? How do we know the father? It is in Jesus Christ. If you do not have Christ, Christ as he is revealed, you do not really know God because it's the way we know him salvifically. It's the way we know him Especially, it comes from the one who is the son. It's the wisdom of divine things. One writer says, the need for this te teaching arose from the lack of wisdom among men. Man uh, in himself cannot save himself, which the evangelist implies by alluding to the ignorance concerning God, which prevailed among men, saying no one has ever seen God. And he does this fittingly, for wisdom consists properly in the knowledge of God of divine things, which comes in the Son. Hence, Augustine says that wisdom is the knowledge of divine things as science is the knowledge of human things. How do we know divine things? Through the special revelation that primarily comes in the one who is the Son. And thankfully, that Son, after he did his work, still reveals. He still continues to do and to teach according to his word. And we have his scriptures that he speaks through, by the, through his, by the Spirit and with the Word as the Word goes forth. He, the only begotten Son, who is in the bosom of the Father, he has declared him. So what are we to do? Adore him. 
Worship him. Recognize our most excellent Christ. That is our purpose in life, isn't it? To honor God, to glorify God, to worship our Christ. That's why it's good to know these things, that we might be more and more impressed with our Savior. And Ryle has a good quote that I think summarizes all that we see. And now after reading this passage, can we ever give too much honor to Christ? Can we ever think too highly of him? Let us banish the unworthy thought from our minds forever. Let us learn to exalt him more in our hearts and to rest more confidingly the whole weight of our souls in his hands. Men may easily fall into error about the three persons in the Holy Trinity if they do not carefully adhere to the teaching of Scripture. But no man ever errs on the side of giving too much honor to God the Son. Christ is the meeting point between the Trinity and the sinner's soul. He that honors not the Son honors not the Father which sent him. He is greater than Moses. He is greater than John the Baptist. He is greater than you and I. He is consubstantial with the Father. And we see that the Godhead is the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, all one. The glory equal, the majesty co-eternal. And the way we know this is in the only begotten Son, who is in the bosom of the Father. He has declared him. Let us love our Christ whose knowledge, the knowledge of him, is far outweighs anything we can know on this side of heaven and all that we can know on any side of heaven because of the words surpassing excellence. Let us pray. Our gracious God, we confess we do not worship you and praise your name as we ought. We do not know you as much as we should, and yet we're thankful that we do know you, even if it's in uh, seed form, even if it's in the start of the growth stage, we know, O oh Lord, we wish to grow more and learn more, and we know that even eternity cannot exhaust your fullness. And so we are thankful, even as we can have considered these high and lofty things, things that truly are too wonderful for us, yet you are pleased to have revealed them to us in the scriptures. And thank you for men of old who have helped define these things, help to clarify these things, help us to make sure we stay on the right track. And we confess, O oh Lord, so often we have not thought rightly concerning the Son. We confess, O oh Lord, we have not thought rightly concerning the Trinity, and often that is manifested in our lives, that we do not love you as much as we should. So we ask and pray that we would know you, that we would grow in the grace and knowledge of our Christ, and that we would bear fruits. And we pray especially that those fruits would be seen in our love to worship you, to praise your name, to honor your name, to recognize that this is our purpose in life, to sing praises to your name for all that you have done. And so we ask and pray that you'd help us. Ask and pray that you give us the aid that we need. Ask, help us to uh, think more rightly of you. Help us to live more lovingly toward you and toward others. And we know that we need your help to do this by your spirit. So please be pleased to save sinners today. Work in them a mighty work. Be pleased to strengthen your saints this day. And please help us to honor and glorify you in all that we do. And we pray these things in the name of Christ. Amen.